Storygram Network. Hosting for this podcast is generously provided by Transistor at Transistor.fm. Hi, my name is Laura Lee, and this is It's Not About Food. So it's not about food, and it's not about weight. What is it about? Everything else. Because it's never, ever about food or weight. Never, ever. Not even. One time. Not ever. Ever, ever. Hello, everyone. This is Laura Lee Rourke from the podcast, It's Not About Food. And today we're going to be talking about truth. And the body love card has the goddess sitting on the top of a mountain, on the very tippy top, looking over the vista of other mountains in a beautiful sky. And she's just sort of sitting cross-legged and the deer is right next to her with its legs crossed as well. And she's just looking out and realizing the truth of it is what it is. And in the back, it says, truth is our own internal wisdom that defines who we are. Finding our own truth means figuring out the difference between what we've been told we should be versus who we really are. Oftentimes in the past, our true feelings, passions, opinions, and experiences were ignored, rejected, or just not encouraged. When we can relearn to identify what our truth is, we are able to put into action what our heart and soul desires. So I'm so blessed and happy to have Nancy with us today, who's written a wonderful book and has done this work for a really long time. And I just want to say that for me, the whole idea that my internal wisdom was who I really was, was such a mind blower because I believed what other people said and what magazines said and the TV said, and I just did not have a really good idea of who I was and what I wanted. And part of my recovery was finding that all, that that truth and then trusting that truth. And it was a process. It took a long time for me to be able to do that. I learned how to trust other people and think that they told me the truth all the time. And it wasn't until I was really sick and had to lean on myself and listen to my own truth that I was able to get well. So I know that she knows what I'm talking about right now. And I'm going to introduce Nancy, and she's going to tell us about herself and what her work is and what she's been doing. So hello to you. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, the cards, the cards are so lovely. And the truth card really resonated with me because the part about uh, what we've been told we should be, what I thought of was we've been told what we should eat. Yes. That diet culture is so powerful by making everyone believe that we're not smart enough to figure out how to nourish our own bodies, that our bodies are not smart enough to tell us what they need, and that we need to have some outside expert tell us what to eat and when to eat and how much to eat when when our own internal wisdom knows all of that. I've been working in the eating disorder treatment field since 1985, I think, 
And so much of what I see is people who've lost the ability to even know what they want to eat or how much they want to eat because they've been trying to follow these external guidelines and they've lost the ability to listen to that internal truth. And that whatever kind of disordered eating a person is dealing with, that seems to be at the bottom of it. And treatment is about finding one's way back to being able to trust the body to know what to eat and how much to eat. And like I said, I've been doing this work for a long time. I worked on inpatient treatment programs, and I've been in, had an outpatient private practice and counseling for about 22 years now. And part of what I wanted to do was to pull together everything that I've learned doing this work into a book so that it would be accessible to people who don't live close enough to me to come to see me for therapy. And a lot of what I talk about, there's a whole section in the book where I talk about, I actually frame it as there's a psychological term of internal and external locus of control. That internal locus of control is when we listen to ourselves and think things through and make decisions based on our own values and our own feelings, an external locus of control is when we look to something outside of ourselves to tell us how to live, how to make decisions, what to do. And there's a certain comfort in having a set of rules that we can follow that we don't ever have to think about, but is that really living our authentic lives? And and dieting certainly fits into that of if you've been trying to follow somebody else's, an external locus of control, somebody else's rules for years and years and finally realizing it's not working and it's never going to work, then how do you refine and reclaim the internal locus of control of saying, right now I feel like eating this and so that's what I'm going to do. And go against everything I was taught if it's something that's deemed bad in the culture. For me, we started Beyond Hunger in 1988, Carol, Normandy, and I. And then it was quite a while before we were able to get it together to write It's Not About Food and then the teen book over it. And I know that before that, I was recovering from my own eating disorder as well. And I just did not have the idea that I had truth and that I could trust that truth. I really only thought I could trust other people. And they gave me such bad information, (laughs) you know. And so, well, it, bad information was bad for you, but it was good for them because they probably made money. It, yeah. You know, that's a really important piece of diet culture is that the people who are giving us the bad information are making money right. from doing so. Yeah, follow the money. So being able to recognize that and say, you know, who is profiting from this belief that I have? Who's making money from getting me to do something that goes against my own best interest. Yeah. In a way, it was just all throughout my whole childhood. I had a single mom for a mom who was always on a diet, and it was so core in her, even at the end of her life when she had Alzheimer's. She didn't know what her name was. She didn't know who I was. She didn't know where she was, but she knew she was too fat and needed to go on a diet. And I would just shake my head at that core belief that she was not okay from herself. And I would say, oh, you look great, mom. You're fine. And she'd just look at me like, you're crazy, you know? And that's part of what draws me to this work is that how many, how many lives have been spent pursuing thinness 
at a cost to everything else in life when it's just not necessary. People can live rich and full lives, but they get distracted by the pursuit of thinness. And so how do we make a, a movement back towards what it takes to trust our own body so that we spend the rest of our lives doing other more important things. <laughs> exactly, like writing books and painting pictures. Exactly. And, right. Yeah, I, I don't even remember where I originally saw it or where this came from, but the idea that if, if every woman in this country on a diet woke up tomorrow morning and took all the time and energy that she's putting into her diet and put it into something else, anything else, how would the world change? It would. It would be so much more nicer, I think, and so much more truer, for sure, because it would be in their truth, right? Right. There's a little card that says something like, uh, Mother Teresa didn't worry about her thighs. She had bigger to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we all have bigger to do right. <laughs> if we can just get on with it, but... So many people are basically sidelined by diet culture because they're spending so much time and energy pursuing that non-truth, and then they don't have the energy to do anything else. Yeah, and we come to it honestly because, we, you know, at five or four or whatever, think, you know what, I'm going to develop an eating disorder so I drive everyone around me crazy and myself crazy too. No, we come to it honestly because we're being told this. We're being told that you're not okay however your body is, and you better get into shape, girl or boy. The male population is now a money-making machine for the diet industry, so the focus is on them just as bad as it is on women now. And uh, one of the things that I was noticing about your work was the sort of the health at every size. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, that's a that's a big topic. Yeah, um, the <laughs> it is, of concept of health at every size uh, came out of a group of researchers and clinicians and academics back oh probably twenty twenty five years ago. They were specifically looking at the way thinness was being presented in the culture as being healthy, and pursuit of health had to involve weight loss. And they were pushing back against that and saying, you know, show me the data. Show me where it says that being heavier causes all of these health problems. And show me the data that says that when people lose weight, they get healthier and stay that way. Some of the people in that early movement, Deb Burgard, I know was a big mover and shaker. She still is. Marilyn Wan, Paul Ernstberger, John Robison, and, and Lindo Bacon was involved sort of at the beginning. And there were a number of people who started that idea of can we separate health from weight? Can we stop being mean to heavy people because we're telling them that they're unhealthy? So that sort of grew and evolved over time. And I remember there was one point early on when it was like, are we going to say healthy at every size? Are we going to say health at any size? Even coming up with the phrase took some discussion. And then finally, people involved sort of settled on the health at every size phrase. Then the Association for Size Diversity and Health, which is a really interesting organization, and you can just Google size diversity and health and find their website. They have immense, immense resources there. The organization finally trademarked the phrase because they didn't want diet companies to come along and use it to sell, sell more diet. Then Lindo Bacon wrote the book Health at Every Size, which sort of got a whole lot more attention for the phrase, but they were not the person who 
came up with it originally. They were part of the organization from the beginning. You know, there's some confusion about that sometimes. And the concept is not that anybody can be healthy at, at any size or at every size. It's that that we, when we promote weight loss, we're not promoting health. Right. And that if we want to promote health, we need to focus on what 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 things in the world actually do make us healthier, understanding that not everybody can be healthy and understanding that health is not a moral issue and that it's an individual choice if you want to pursue health or not. But if you do want to pursue health, how can you do that without constantly talking about weight loss? Yeah. What if we take weight loss out of the equation, then what is health and how to get that health? And then recognizing one of the things that I've gotten real interested in in the last two or three years is social determinants of health, Mm -hmm. that that the diet industry would have us believe that we are totally in control of our own health, and if we just eat the right things and move the right ways, we'll be totally healthy. And if we're not healthy, it's our own fault because we're not doing those things. And if you really look at the data on this, social determinants account for well over half of health outcomes. To put it real simply, rich people are healthier than poor people. And kind of rich people are healthier than kind of poor people. And if you really want to be healthy, the best thing you can do for yourself is be rich. If you can't be rich, at least don't be poor. And that's a piece that the vast majority of people have no individual control over. Mm -hmm. That if somebody grows up in a high-income zip code and they have access to good medical care and they have access to clean air and clean water, I don't think Flint, Michigan has clean water yet. The people who have access to good schools, access to lots of social support within their communities, those people are going to do better on all kinds of metrics, including health, than people who grow up in poverty in an area with high pollution levels, with lots of stress. It's hugely stressful mm-hmm. to not know if you're going to pay, be able to pay the rent, not know if you're going to be able to have enough money to feed your children. That's enormously stressful, and that impacts health. From a policy point of view, so you pushed one of my buttons because I can go on and on about this. From a policy point of view... When people say, oh, look at all of these people in the inner cities who are not very healthy, what shall we do to help them be more healthy? Well, it's real easy to say, let's teach them nutrition classes because it's their own fault that they're not eating better. It's much easier to do that than to say, wow, we really need to revamp the entire infrastructure and revamp the entire tax system because it's unreasonable to let people live this way. Yes, that, That takes a lot more money and a lot more civic will. So that's kind of my soapbox these days. I understand. And I think uh, personally, my numbers in my blood test that I just had recently were not that great. And I get a letter from the corporation that my medical plan is under. And I get this letter that's addressed to me, but doesn't have anything to do with me that says stuff like, eat a more Mediterranean diet and drink more water about these things. And there's not a word about, there's a lot of stress going on with the pandemic. Really? (laughs) I'm not eating any different than I was a year ago. So what's new? This is new. The COVID-19 is new. The worry about that is new. It just blew me away when I got that letter. And I feel like, don't even talk to me about this until you have a better 
idea of what's really going on with everybody. And yet the diet industry has had such an enormous impact on the medical fields, on the public health field, that people just don't even question that message. Right, and they don't know what else to do. They don't look at it and say gee, we could be contributing to eating disorders by saying that. And maybe we should offer some meditation or some other kind of medical help rather than tell her to drink more water. (laughs) Yeah, and meditation is not going to help that single mom who's having to work two jobs That's right. in, in order to pay the rent and wondering whether she's going to have enough food at the end of the month when the food stamps run out. Meditation's yeah. not going to do much for her. No. And let's, for the... Let's find a way for her to have better financial security, and that will do more for her health. But yeah. that's a, a much more controversial idea. Storygram Network. Welcome to One Media, One Media. I'm... When you're whining with nurses. It's a place I like to call The Bleed. My name is Laura Lee, and this is It's Not About Food. Rich flavor is one of your favorites. You'll want to join me on the wine road. The art of being yay isn't just something he developed. Storygram Network. Well, and why is it? But we know that the people who are working in the grocery stores or, you know, working with minimum wage are the ones that are getting more sick from these things. And it's not because they're bad and wrong. It's because they're swimming in the ocean that a lot of us don't want to swim in and don't swim in. So if there is health at every size, then one of the things that I tell people when they ask me about that, I said, you know, it's the idea that there's more reasons why you're healthy or not healthy than just, did you eat enough salad? That's what we have to (laughs) let go of and go to, a like you're saying, a wider discussion, much wider than we have been. Like if you just eat a Mediterranean diet and drink more water, then your numbers will be perfect, which is not really true. There's something else going on. Well, it's way, way, way more complicated than that. And in fact, some of the research shows that what we eat, it has some effect on our health, but it really doesn't have that much. Whether or not we're physically active, whether we exercise, is shown to be related to metabolic health and cardiovascular fitness. But then one of the other pieces of the diet culture is that exercise is for the purpose of losing weight. And thin people think, I don't need to exercise because I'm thin. And they may have horrible metabolic numbers. And then other people start an exercise program thinking, I'm going to get healthy and I'm going to get thin. And then if they don't lose weight or they don't lose enough or they lose it and gain it back, which is what happens most of the time, which is worse. Then they get discouraged and they give up. Yeah. And then exercise some people actually, they don't realize this till, till you point it out to them, but some people consider exercise to be punishment for being fat. Yes, yes, and, oh my God, And yes. to be able to, going again back to truth and what we've been told, there's joy in movement for most of us, that most of us can find some kind of movement that gives us physical joy, that feels good yes. and makes us happy. And whether we're good at it or not, 
I've taken dance classes through the years, and most of the time I was terrible at it, <laughs> but it gave me joy Yeah, because I was doing it because it was something that I wanted to do and I enjoyed doing it, not because I felt like I had to to burn off calories. And yeah. that idea, when there's so many people, that I introduce that idea to them, and it's like something they can't even comprehend because especially people who grew up in households where they were constantly criticized for how much they weighed yes. and constantly told, don't eat that, go for a run. And yet, I don't just work with eating disorders. I work with people with depression and anxiety and relationship mm-hmm. issues and all kinds of things. And uh, regular exercise is one of the most helpful things that you can do for depression and anxiety. It helps people sleep better at night. It boosts the serotonin levels in your brain. It lowers the stress hormones in your bloodstream. People who are taking a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, mm-hmm. antidepressant, 10 minutes a day of exercise actually makes the medication work better because it gives your brain more serotonin That's to, right. to work with. Both of them. Mm-hmm. And I told that to somebody one time and she said, you're just making that up to get me to go for a walk, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, really, it's the truth. Well... Again, personally, I was a runner in high school. I'm built like a runner, and I love to run. But then I blew out both of my knees because as I developed my eating disorder as a teenager, I started running on concrete and running and running and running, quote-unquote, through the pain. And, of course, you know, I didn't listen to my knees because they were bothering me because I needed to run to be thinner. And then finally, I couldn't run anymore, and I had to start walking And I remember thinking, this is so boring and so awful, but my body was so happy that I would now just do walking and hiking and not do it for weight loss. But I think of my body as like a trusted dog. I was taking my dog for a walk. (laughs) I wasn't making my dog run on a treadmill. I was letting my dog walk as it wanted to do and stop and smell the roses. And that was a huge shift for me. And I love walking. I live in a city that has some gorgeous neighborhoods of older houses. Mm -hmm. And that's something that gives me joy is to be able to just walk and not walk so fast that I miss stuff, but to be able to go, oh, that house is really pretty. This tree is really gorgeous. I wonder what it looks like in the spring that I love having pretty neighborhoods to walk in that I can watch change through the seasons. And then I think how many people are missing out on this, missing out on what they would enjoy because the only outcome that that makes any difference to them is weight loss. The whole idea just impairs quality of life for so many people. It certainly does. And like you were talking, even if there's not weight loss in there, they're worrying about how are they going to get enough money for new tennis shoes because the shoes that their son is wearing, they don't fit anymore. It's a much bigger issue than just get healthy and be quiet and we don't want to hear from you anymore. That It's such a simple solution to a huge problem, but it's not a simple solution. It is a big solution to a big problem. So I'm wondering if you think about the idea of truth and if they haven't been taught to trust themselves or their own quote-unquote truth, how do you counsel them to listen to that small voice within and believe it? It takes time and it takes persistence. Sometimes I'll suggest it as an experiment. 
Why don't you try this and see what happens? Try this and pay attention to how you feel. Because when people are using the scale as their measure of success, they're not paying attention to all of the other things that are true. Like, are you sleeping better? Do you have more stamina? Are you able to focus on your schoolwork better? And just point out some of those other variables and say, just, you know, try this as an experiment for a week. Try following the meal plan that the dietitian gave you and see if your schoolwork gets easier to do. Yeah, because you have more brain power when you're fed better. Absolutely. And for some people, it's especially for older people, because I work with you know teenagers and on up, and sometimes with older people, it's like, how long have you been trying this and, and is it working? <laughs> you know, how much money have you spent? How much time and energy have you spent on things that turn out to not work? Yeah. And putting it that way, one of the pieces that we get to not early on, but eventually often is let's use your anger yeah. to, to help motivate this. You know, how can you use your anger about all of the lies that you've been told to push back against it and reclaim what you want out of life? One of the stories in my book is about a, a young woman who saw me initially with an eating disorder but now still periodically sees me because of some family issues. And she told me one time that she was in college at this point that she'd gotten a text from somebody who was selling beach body workout stuff. And so I texted her back and I told her that all of her suggestions were eating disordered behaviors and that she was causing harm by doing this. <laughs> Good for you. That was so wonderful. Yeah. But that's been part of her recovery. That's part of what helps when she's having a bad day. She remembers that she was able to push back against something like that. Oh. And not everybody is going to get to that point. Not everybody's going to want to do that. But that's also, it's a possibility. Yes. This is something you could do if you choose to. Well, that's right. It's, it's sort of like uh, if we stop starving ourselves, we might become activists of what really matters in the world rather than just, I'm going to be really thin, and then that's not going to help anybody. I mean, that's just being thin. If that's your natural body, great, great, great then you don't have to push yourself to have it. You can just allow it to happen. If you're going to be whatever size your DNA tells you to just let go of that, of that idea that you have to smush it into a different size. One of the other things I see, again, with, with people who are well into adulthood is that when they start trusting their bodies, believe in the truth that their body is telling them, that then they start looking at other things in the world differently. That's right. That Maybe my boss yells at me not because I'm a bad employee, but because my boss is a jerk. Yeah. Maybe I can tell my husband that I really don't like the way he does this or that because I'm no longer so wrapped up in everything is my fault because I can't control my body, my weight. And that's really wonderful to see when people are able to start trusting other parts of their lives and trusting their own truths about other things because they're able to trust their truth about their own hunger. That's right. And I think one of the things that we say in, in the book, It's Not About Food, is that when people stop hating their bodies and stop dieting and start living and being in their own truth and trusting themselves, then people stop going to school or they start going to school or they get a divorce or they marry that beautiful person that they've been putting it off or they build a house or they they move out of the country and into the city. You know, other things happen that's been at bay while they just 
loop-de-loop-de-loop over the diet or the hatred. Exactly what you're saying. Yeah, being able to be part of that process is is what makes this work so incredibly satisfying. Yes, it's so true. I wanted to say a couple things yeah. about books. Go ahead. Something about in my book, I have a chapter on the overview of the science behind all of this. I also have a couple of chapters specifically on weight stigma, mm-hmm. and then I have chapters about sort of the processes that I found to be helpful to people of getting over diet culture, reclaiming hunger, reclaiming body, reclaiming joy and exercise. But I have to say the chapters that have a lot of citations, like the the one, the overview of the science and the ones about weight stigma, when I was writing them, I found myself thinking, I hope some college student finds this and uses it as a jumping off place to write a paper. Yes. <laughs> There are some places that I tried to have lots and lots of resources. One of the things I found myself thinking about books, because I remember when your book came out, there were so few books available to recommend to people, and now there are lots and lots more. We can't all buy all of the books, right? but we can suggest to our library that the library get the book. That's right. And then it's there on the shelf right next to all the diet books. (laughs) So somebody who's browsing through the books may find my book or your book or Chrissy Harrison's book or Wendell Bacon's books and go, oh, maybe this is something that that will give me the answers that I'm looking for. That it's a way not only to support the authors, but also to get the word out. So I hope anybody who listens to this podcast will think about just checking with your library. How do you request book purchases? That's right. And then use that as a resource. And don't believe the hype that is out there because I know that at some point, I don't know which diet it was, it might be one of these newer ones that say it's not about the food, but here is how it is about the food. (laughs) Here are all the foods you should never, ever eat. And here are all the foods you should only eat um, every once in a while. But it's not about the food. One of my phrases that I use all the time with people is, all foods are good foods, mm-hmm. unless it makes you break out in hives. If you're allergic <laughs> to it, it's a bad food. If it makes but your other throat than that, close. all foods are good foods. Right. <laughs> if it makes your throat close or gives you constant diarrhea or it makes you, like, sick, then, yeah, right. that's not then, probably... Then it's a bad food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not bad. The food I is personally bad. believe that lima beans are horrible food, but I know there are people in the world who love lima beans, so that's whatever. Right. Yeah, if it puts you in anaphylactic shock, then, yeah, you want to avoid, <laughs> yeah. that's a bad food. Yeah, you're not bad. That food is bad, yeah. Right. So you do have a little platform here, and is there anything that you'd like to say before we wrap it up here? One thing is I have a, a Facebook page called Dr. Neo that I use to repost things that have to do with all of the things that we've just been talking about. And so if people want to follow me there, I try to make that a good place to see other resources, what other people are saying about things. Perfect. And it's Dr. D-R-N-E-O? Yeah, it's capital D, small r, period, and then capital N, capital E, capital O, which is my initials, Nancy Ellis Ordway. Perfect. What's the name of your book and who's the publisher? Thrive at Any Weight, Eating to Nourish Body, Soul, and Self-Esteem. And the people I dealt with were at ABC Clio, but it's actually a Prager imprint. Okay, great. That sounds wonderful. So you can go to your favorite independent bookstore and 
And if they don't have it on the shelf, get it on the shelf and also in your library. So I wonder if you would read that bottom of the card, Today I Will Practice. Today I will practice listening to my own internal wisdom. When I start to become fearful, confused, insecure, self-critical, or find myself doing something I don't want to do, I will take a breath and ask myself, what is my truth? Oh, that's so lovely. It is so great. I think if I were to write this card again, it would be, what is my truth? And then believe it. (laughs) And then let that be the truth and follow the prompt. Well, it's been a pleasure to listen to you and to talk to you today. I really just am so admiring of your work and your great book, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. You can find me on all the social medias at It's Not About Food. And if you would like to get the show a week early and ad-free, you can become a member at Patreon. Search It's Not About Food podcast. Thanks so much.